0: What's going on, guys? Mike Gaston here, and we are live, my friends. Live. Welcome. You are taking part in the currency. You are what makes this podcast great. Yes, I am a great uh, would-be world dictator, but what would I be without my friends here on Currency Big hello to George. Hello, Pauline. How are you guys doing? Great to see you in the crowd. George says uh, he can't wait. He says it's all good. I asked him, how's it going? He said, it's all good. Looking forward to hearing from my beloved, quote, dictator for life. That warms my soul, George, on a cold winter day in upstate New York. (laughs) Pauline says that she's busy moving the living room around to make space for a Christmas tree. Looks like the, uh, the Weinberger family will be getting their Christmas tree. Uh, Imminently, we here at Gaston Manor have not gotten ours yet. The American tradition is to get your Christmas tree at the very uh, end of Thanksgiving. The day after Thanksgiving, a lot of people like to get all their Christmas decorations up. We like to drag our feet a little bit here at Gaston Manor. It's not that we want to do a last minute, but we want to just savor that moment of thankfulness. We don't want to get into that Christmas crush Just right away. But my wife and I were talking, Mrs. G and I talking about, when are we going to get a tree? And uh, come to find out, my eldest son's girlfriend has never gone to get a tree. So the idea is we're going to get together, get her out there, go get a tree out in the cold, wintry day. And then uh, I think she's going to scoot back to Chicago to be with her family. So that should be happening within the week. But uh, thanks for joining me, guys. So excited to have you guys along. Excited that we're kind of coming into the Christmas season, and the end of the year. Uh, this is episode number 72 of The Currency, and today's title is Educating the Mobility. Educating the Mobility. Today is, uh, what is it? It's December 6th, 2020. December 6th, 2020. We are rocketing or maybe plunging towards the end of the year. I'd like to think that 2021 is going to be good, but I got to tell you, after this year, I'm a little, I'm a little jaded. I uh, I think we're all in this mode of like, what, what else could go wrong? And Somebody said to me the other day, we were talking about something, they go, well, it couldn't be worse. And I said, "Uh, don't say that. It it could absolutely be worse. And we both looked at each other and I think he said, yeah, actually, you're right. It could be a lot worse. I think we've all learned our lesson this year. So uh, I hope you guys are doing great. I'm really excited to be doing the podcast. I'm very grateful this year. You know, I launched this podcast a year or two ago. It's taken a few different iterations, gone different directions. I've interviewed people. I did monologues, et cetera. We moved to the live stream, and it's just been nice. Uh, there was a little period there. I want to say maybe May through July. There was a few months where I got kind of exhausted and <laughs> just stopped doing it. And obviously, the, the numbers tanked. But it's great to see the podcast growing again. It's great to see the audience growing, people jumping in. Let's take a look at some of the comments here. Uh, Pauline says, we were going to hunt one down but ended up going the IKEA route again. So... Pauline, for the Ikea route, does that mean that you've got an artificial tree or is the Ikea route, uh, do they sell live trees? We do not have an Ikea in my town. Uh, I'm not in a big enough city to merit, to warrant an Ikea. Maybe the closest one is, well, I could go to Toronto across the uh, border um, in a normal world where I was allowed to freely travel uh, between these two countries, these great nations, America and Canada. These wonderful neighbors, these friends, these allies, these seeming siblings sometimes, not so much. But I can't, you know, can't get across the border, and I would imagine it's a bit of a a pain in the neck uh, to try to buy something of significance in Canada, get it across the border. Uh, I, I've done that border crossing more times than I can remember growing up on a border city like that. We spent a lot of time in Toronto, Niagara Falls, etc. cetera. But um, the idea of like humping a bunch of furniture back through the border, not so good. And then I think the second closest would be Pittsburgh, which is about a four hour drive away from us, maybe five hours. I'm not sure. So I'm curious if you're going uh, real, you're going fake. What, what, what are you doing over there with those 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 crazy cats at Ikea? Uh, Pauline says, make podcasts great again. Yes, make them great again. Uh, And then Pi ends with zero. There he is, my good friend. He says, all hail the leader. Pi, welcome to the pod. Great to have you along. Thank you for being here, my friend. He continues to say, do we make it motherland or fatherland? Love imagining, albeit incorrectly, that I will have a function in the new power structure. Of course you will. Of course you will. Uh, something tells me that you, you'll be like the minister of national strategy. I'm not sure if that's the perfect role, but you and I have had some strategic discussions. National minister Strate- Strate- strategy, strategy, uh, or, or something similar. Uh, you know, I haven't seen. Um, I haven't seen. Uh, who's our buddy out there in Italy? The Dutch, our Dutch buddy that's in Italy. He's our sports minister we 've got George who 's going to be the Minister of Information for sure <laughs> he 's always the one looking stuff up, um, but yeah so let 's see here. Uh, I think we make it fatherland, and here 's why I know it 's unf- it's, it's unfashionable in this age uh, to to you know embrace the concept of fatherhood it 's not fashionable to embrace your manhood, your masculinity to even to even deign to, to presume that the world could. Benefit from from the male presence on the national stage, but but at the end of the day, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a patriarch kind of guy. I like the patriarchy. Now I know it's got a bad rap. I know it's got a bad rap. But the fact of the matter is, for thousands and thousands of years, men have been running the world, and we're not doing too bad. I'm not saying that women don't have a place at the table. I'm not anti-whammin. I'm not anti the females. I, I love the women folk just fine. Love them a whole lot, actually. But, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater people. Yes, we want to eliminate pestilence, war, all those terrible things that men do. But on the other hand, uh, for me, it's got to be a fatherland. It's got to be a fatherland. It's got to be a fatherland. That said, I want it to be a place that is strong because of its diversity under my <laughs> Single leadership. I'm not sure what kind of diversity we're going to have. Diversity of of alignment with me. I don't know how that works. Anyway, enough goofing around, guys. I'm glad to have you along. Let's let's read some more comments here. Uh, Pauline says we pay $25 for a real tree. The money mostly goes to charity, and we get a coupon to use in December. So that's $25, Scandinavian, I believe, as they like to say on the uh, on the uh, No Agenda podcast. The can $25, Scandinavian. That's that's a deal. Uh, my wife does a similar thing. So uh, Lydia, Mrs. Gaston, is an avid gardener. Just she's, the, Lydia is very gifted as a nurturer. If there's something that needs to live and grow, she will make it happen. She's got that touch. She, she loves to garden. She loves animals, children, and so on. She's just this amazing nurturer, and she takes care of this barnyard animal of a husband that she has <laughs> pretty well. Uh, so she likes to buy a tree. There's there's like a nursery out in the country a little bit from us here, maybe 15, 20 minute drive. And they do a deal where we probably drop 60, 75 bucks for a tree. It's a nice tree, live tree. But then I think she gets $30, $40 in coupons that she goes back in the spring and loads up on some on some supplies, maybe some plants for the garden uh, for that for that year. So that's we do a similar thing. Doesn't go to charity. Uh, but it does go into the pocket of a local small business owner, which, you know, to me brings a tear to my eye. What a thing of beauty and joy. Let's see. Pauline says, IKEA is 10 minutes away from me. Well, you, you're living in the promised land. Uh, you're living in the promised land. And uh, Pauline, I, I, I wouldn't be lying. I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit envious. Well, I'd like to have. A, I've never been to an IKEA. I've never eaten Ikea Swedish meatballs and so on. I have uh, enjoyed Ikea products, but I've never been to an Ikea. Pines with Zero says, we're surrounded by forests, so the trees are complimentary if you come at night and fast. I love it. That's awesome. That's classic. Classic. Love it. That's too funny. Don't get caught. Farmers, uh, you get that double-barrel shotgun loaded with birdshot. That can be a painful experience, my friend. Um, and then Pi says, uh, "Pi National uh, Strategy, nice title. You got it. You got it." So Pauline says that she'll be the court jester. I uh, know Pauline. We have something better for you, court jester. I mean, look, if you want that role, I'm not going to deny it to you. If you want the role of court jester, it's yours. But I feel like there's something better for Pauline. What are some of your thoughts? What do you guys think? What should Pauline be in the in the uh, in the coming? In the coming kingdom, the fatherland. Let's take a look here. A few more comments before we jump into today's content. Pi says, if you do something poorly, your father slaps you gently yet firmly, and you find out directly you shouldn't do that. Foolproof system, hundred percent. See, dads, we have a function in this world. I remember, and he'll, he'll hopefully he doesn't mind me sharing this story. But my eldest son, fantastic. He actually works with me in my consultancy. The guy's just great. He has his. Uh, degree in economics. He worked in analytics for a while in a publicly traded company as an analyst. And uh, then he joined me in in the firm and he's he's doing a lot of strategic content creation and so on. Really sharp young guy. It's been great to work together. I'd love to have all my kids working with me. It's obviously that's not um, possible necessarily, but it would be a lot of fun. But anyway, when he graduated college, now he was trying to get through school as cheaply as possible. And so what we did is we said, hey, we'll pay for the first two years and get your associate's degree. But the next two years are on you. And we'll support you. We'll provide you food and so on. You can stay at home if you want to. You don't have to go out to college. But, but it's on you to kind of make that, that, that last two years happen financially. And we also encouraged him to try to find a way to do it so that you end up debt-free. So he lived at home and commuted to, the, the lo- to a local university, very uh, well-regarded university. When he finished college, he got his degree. And uh, a few days later, I sat him down and said, OK, uh, you got six months. The clock's ticking. I think it was six months. I may have given him three months, but I think it was six. I can't remember. But I gave him a handful of months and said, you have to get a job. You have to get your own place. You, you have to move on. This is, uh, you, there's, the clock's ticking. You got to make it happen. And I remember he was a little, he was never rude to me. But I remember, he, I think it kind of hurt his feelings like he was being kicked out. And uh, my wife was pretty upset, too, she, she, because for her, she, homeschool mom. So, she, you know, this, this kid, she's brought him into the world, given him life, sustained him, nurtured him, uh, educated him. Then, as he's been in college, has been helping support him. I mean, he was a self-sufficient guy, hard worker, but, you know, mom was still there. And she felt like, what are you doing? Like, you're kicking this child out of our home. You're just being so harsh. And I said, honey, you have to understand, like... Part of my job as a father is to is to help him take on more responsibilities, to help him grow. And the only way he's going to grow into the next phase of life is if I put some pressure on him and, and put him in a position where he has to learn to stand on his own two feet. And within, I want to say, two months, three months, he had a great job, that, that analyst job I talked about. Uh, he he got, landed that job, started working, and... Um, you know, started rising up the ranks, got some raises, got some promotions, etc. But, you know, this is what fathers do. Fathers are supposed to, at times, apply some pressure. And it's not because we're bad people, uh, although we can be at times. But it's because part of our job is to help our children come into maturity, come into the fullness, both our, our boys and our girls, to become men and women. It's not that the mothers don't have any hand in that. They absolutely do. But that's part of father's job. And sometimes that has to be a little tough, a little tough, just that gentle smack in the back of the head. I I got a few of those, maybe not so gentle sometimes. I deserved worse. My poor father and mother, God bless them. And may God rest my father's soul. Let's take a look here. George says, as soon as Mrs. G enters the room, Mike will change that, LOL. Yeah, you think so? I don't think so. I don't think so. You think it'll go from fatherland to motherland? Uh, Mrs. G's. she's, look, she's put up with me for so long. She knows that I'm, you know, I'm a dictator in training. And, um... (laughs) She puts up with my nonsense and has for almost twenty nine years, folks. Twenty nine years—that's that's a long time. Pines with zero says, "Do you guys have the meatballs in IKEA over the pond in the yonder?" I've heard stories of meatballs, and uh, I, that's—I want to try the Swedish meatballs. So uh, Pauline says, "I had their meatballs on Friday." She says, and then lastly, before we jump in, Paul says or Pines with zero says is it strategic to use a resource like Pauline as jester or father or our fatherlands need to consider that? He's he's already jumping into the strategy role. I just feel like Pauline brings so much more. She, what, you know what she does? And this actually, if you think about a court jester, we tend to think of the court jester as the idiot. We go, Oh, in our, in, in today's day and age, we go, Oh, the court jester, that's the dummy. That's the idiot. That's the clown. Actually the court jester's role. And this is true history here. You can look this up. The court jester's role was to keep the king humble. The court jester was the only one that could mock the king, that could say things, that could satirize the king in the court. Everybody's sitting around. See, in a court, you've got all the power kind of centered on the king. And, and everyone in the court are these hangers-on, these dukes and duchesses and different levels of people coming to the court, hanging out at Versailles in these different places. They're there to curry favor with the king. There's all this palace intrigue. There's these allegiances and alliances and jockeying for a position. They're flattering the king all the time. They're telling the king what he or the queen what she wants to hear. There's a lot of this just kind of sucking up, this sycophancy towards the king. The court jester was there not to just amuse the king, but often to keep the king's feet on the ground, to keep the king humble. Sometimes, you know, could get away with saying things. They wouldn't get their head chopped off for saying the truth. Now, they would say it in a way that was funny. They would satirize. They would joke. They would do it in a way that, that would let off some pressure, let off some steam. But they weren't there just to be mocked and, and made fun of. We tend to think of it that way. We go to the court jesters, the goofball. No, the court jester served a very important role and that was to keep the king humble. So, all that said, I think that at times Pauline has done a good job keeping my feet on the ground. She's got me a few times and it's funny. I love I love um some of the comments. But I feel like I feel like we we need to find an elevated position for Pauline and uh so I think something about keeping me humble 100%, but um but yeah, good stuff. So, Pines of zero says, I still remember joining my father's company thinking it'll be easy. And he ground me to dust for 10 years. Great dad, though. I didn't think like this back then. Good to learn 80 to hundred hour weeks early. Yeah. See, that's the thing. And I, I've been really blessed to have my son in the company. He joined me April 1st and it's been good on one level. I push him, but on another level, it's great as a father to work with him as a uh, a, a fellow professional to see him in his younger career kind of blossom, to see him kind of dig in and, and develop depth and capability and to watch the clients respond to him too. clients say, wow, your son's got a lot of game. He's, he's really doing a great job for us. So it's just, it's just nice to, to see that happen. I have another son and daughter. I would love to have them in the business too, but uh, my one son's a mechanical engineer and does very well. Actually works for a virtual reality company. It creates a virtual reality gear and augmented reality gear. And uh, he does very well. I, unfortunately, as a consultant, don't have the kind of work that would, that would either pay my son well enough or challenge him, challenge the gifts and skills he has. And of course, my daughter's just wrapping up college a couple of weeks here and she's done ski. All right, guys, let's talk a little bit about educating the mobility. What is that all about? What is educating the mobility? Why, what, what is the mobility? And I just was, it's a little tongue in cheek back in the day in England, uh, sixteen, seventeen hundreds. You had people of quality, and you had, and you had the mobility. So people of quality were the aristocrats, the various uh, people born into families of note, uh, various levels of society. Obviously, they but they were aristocratic. They were landed gentry. They were uh, dukes, duchesses, and all these duchesses and all these things, earls and whatnot. These were the people of quality. On the other side, you had the mobility, which is where we get the word the mob. Mobility, mob is short for mobility. This is the mob, the mob rules, the mobility. The mobility was the the everyday people. Uh, Typically, we would have found ourselves as mobility if we lived back then. I don't know if anybody in the audience here has uh, any royal lineage, Um, but we would find ourselves in the mob. And this was just the riffraff. (laughs) This was the average person on the streets, the the bakers, candlestick makers, shop owners, uh, the ne'er-do-wells, the, the pub owners and the people walking the streets just living their life. And so we're talking today, the rabble. Thank you, Pions of Zero, the rabble. That was the word I was actually looking for. We're the rabble. Great. Well, we are. We were back then. We were back then. And... Um, And so we're talking today about educating the mobility. I wanna talk a little bit about the education system. Uh, And I've touched on this before a little bit, but there was a news article that kind of caught my eye and I thought it'd be a good launching point to talk a little bit about about the education system, at least here in the US, but I think there's a trend and I I think it's important. I wanna kind of call out a a trend I'm seeing. So you'll see here, I've I've just brought up on the screen um, a news story by, uh, who is this by? This is the Aspen Times. So Aspen uh, is a city, a town, well-known town in Colorado, famous town for skiing, a lot of wealthy people and Aspen. And uh, the Aspen Times had an article recently, you'll see it just posted about 14 hours ago, and it's that the Aspen schools are considering IB for all. And you're like, what's IB. IB stands for International Baccalaureate. So Aspen schools are considering the IB for all. There we go. So Pions of Zero is just asking, what is IB? IB is the International Baccalaureate. And, And here's what's going on. I won't read the whole article for you, but essentially the Aspen School District has been looking across the schools. And the way it works in the United States, I don't know how it works in various countries, but in the U.S., we have school districts, usually based on municipalities. You would think that there's one big federal public school system and then a handful of private schools. It's not how it works. Historically, each little area, town, village, um, metropolis, would have its own school district. They would collect, and they still do, taxes based on your property values. So I own a property in a school district here, and there is property tax levied against me, that goes to my town and part, you know, it goes to my county and so on. But then there's a chunk of that, a couple thousand, two, $3,000 that will go to the school district. And so every property owner in that school district pays amount of taxes that go right to the school district. And that money then funds the school buildings, the teachers, uh, the, the, all the materials, everything it takes to run these schools. And so what you get is uh, this system where each town, each city, each municipality is able to control its own educational system. Now, there's some standardization. They don't make up their own grades. Like in America, you've got K, kindergarten through 12th grade. We're talking about you know, before college here. We're talking about it was this uh, secondary, post-secondary. No, this is just secondary education, primary, secondary education. So there's something standardized, and, and there are some expectations that your child in seventh grade is typically going to learn certain things, and that kids across the country are learning similar things. Each school district doesn't just decide, well, we're going to just completely do it differently. There's some alignment. It's not that they have to use the same curricula or curriculum, but that they are aligned as far as, you know, in your eighth grade, I'm just making this up because it's been a long time since I've been educated. Uh, in eighth grade, you're going to learn algebra. And ninth grade, you're going to do geometry. You know, 10th grade, you might do trig or calc or something like that. So, so what happens, though, is each school district gets to choose its own curriculum. It can say, well, we're going to use these books. We're going to use this system. I mean, they, they're all choosing, and there's tons of these out there. You can, you can develop your own. You can buy them, etc. cetera. Uh, so what happens is each school district is able to access a certain level of quality education based on tax revenues. So you can imagine if you live in a lower income suburb, let's say, or you live in a lower income part of a city, or you live in a wealthy suburb, that's going to impact the government's ability to provide education. It's going to impact the government's ability to provide education. And so you'll get these school districts that are right next to each other there. You could walk across the line from one to the other. And one is a really high end school district. It's got the best of the best teachers, award winning teachers, award winning schools, the, the latest in technology, a full complement of staff and uh, in, in, in scores really well. You know, it's just in the in the national rankings, really high ranked school. And literally right next door, you'll have a school district where kids are dropping out. Teen pregnancy is high. They're struggling to keep staff. There's a lot of violence in the school. There's a lot of recidivism and dropouts and all this kind of stuff. Recidivism. I don't think recidivism uh, relates to schools. I think that has to do more with ending up back in prison. But truancy, I think, is the word I was looking for. A lot of truancy. Anyway, so what Aspen's talking about here is they're saying, hey, you know, we're Aspen and we got this reputation and so on. But the problem is uh, we are finding across our schools that it's not equal, that some schools do really well, some do really poorly. And so what we want to do is introduce this international baccalaureate program. So the international baccalaureate program is a program that was developed in Geneva, Switzerland, and it's a worldwide nonprofit program founded to give all students the opportunity to receive an education fit for a globalizing world. There are four interla- international baccalaureate education programs, all of which are intended to develop students' intellectual, emotional, personal, and social skills. High school students will mostly be concerned with the IB diploma program and the career-related program. So essentially, this is a program that is standardized. It's made to be more standardized. and It's made to orient the child to a more global world. And so the folks in... Uh, the folks in... Aspen are saying, well, we're thinking of maybe just going this international baccalaureate program. Here's the thing. We're sitting with COVID. We can't, uh, we can't come to the classroom. Uh, these kids are learning remotely anyway. It's hard to administer the, the education and so on. And so what we're going to do is look at maybe this international baccalaureate program to standardize the education across the board, get all our kids on the same program, get them all learning the same thing. And, and so on. And so there's this movement actually within the U.S. to see this standardization of education. Where am I going with all this? Well, hold on a second. Let's take a few comments here. Uh, Pines Zero says, didn't know, didn't you guys start having school ministries only like since the 60s? I'm not sure what you mean by school ministries. Um, and then he also asks, does Alex Jones know about this? No, I'm trying to beat Jones to the punch. I don't know. I haven't paid attention to Alex Jones uh, you know, I've never really been an Alex Jones guy. Like, I, he's comical to me. Like, I look at Alex Jones as a true performer. This guy's built an immense uh, media empire and an immense following. Uh, he's, a true, he's a true entertainer. He's a showman. Um, and, so, you know, some, it's funny. Sometimes he gets stuff right. I mean, he's so off the wall. But I, kinda, I mean, I know he's done some despicable things, too, and I know people have a hard time with Alex Jones, and I know he hustles products that are questionable and so on, but there's a part of me that kind of respects Alex Jones a little bit. I look at what he's built, and I look at the persona that he's created, and I just think it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Now, I'm not a consumer of his product, not because I find him offensive. I just don't have the time, and so he doesn't rank very high, but I get a kick out of Jones, so I don't know. He might be talking about this, and if he is, it's, it's a little bit of a coincidence, yeah, Pions Zero says, I enjoy his manic soapbox profit-like energy really more than the content. Exactly. And that's exactly what I'm getting at Pia, 100%. Why am I bringing all this up? And I don't want to drag this out. Let's, let's cut to the chase here. Here's where I'm going with this. We live in a world where we have so far enjoyed the benefits of what I will call checks and balances. Now, I think some people will hear this and say, not checks and balances. They hear about this international baccalaureate and go, this is kind of cool, You've got this, you know, program that's, you know, global, it's, it's citizen of the world and so on. This is great. And I know, and I know the Alex Jones reference, you already know where this is kind of going, but you have to ask yourself a foundational question, kind of a first, first principle question. And that is, is mankind, is mankind basically good? Are we unflawed at our core or is mankind at his core flawed? Are we... Flawed or unflawed? Is mankind whole? Is he essentially good? Is it just a matter that he needs to be given? And when I say he, I'm just talking about the race, not the fatherland, the men of the fatherland. My patriarchy seeping out. People, please forgive me. I have to take a quick sip just in penance. Mm. Pay honor to a Scotsman. So those of you listening, I I just have a a lovely, (laughs) lovely peaty scotch in a glass over here. Uh, so, is mankind essentially good, or is he essentially bad? Is mankind just needing better education? Is mankind just needing a better environment? Is, does, does mankind just need better chances, and then the race will just become better? Like do people do bad things because of environment, in their nurture? Or is there something in man's nature? Is there something in us that's broken? Is there a sickness? Now, don't worry. I'm not going to try to pin you on the Christian theology of of original sin and, and, and you know, the, uh, what is it, the Calvinists like to call it uh, utter depravity or something like that. I believe that mankind has sin nature. Don't get me wrong. I'm, just, I'm not trying to use this to corner my listeners into this position where they have to agree with me. But I'm saying, is there something broken in mankind? Yeah, I don't think you have to be a believer to look at the world and go, yeah, I think something's broken. How much money have we poured into making things better? How much education? How many programs? How m- like across the globe, I don't just mean America. This isn't a gripe about taxes. This isn't like, how much of my tax money is it going to take to take care of these stupid poor people? I'm not saying that in any way. I'm not talking about charity. I'm not talking about, talking about helping people. I'm talking about, is mankind's nature fundamentally flawed? Or is it fundamentally whole? Is it fundamentally good? And I look at the world and I look at history. We go back to the whole thing about men running the show. But I look at history, I think it's really hard to make the argument that mankind is in essence good. There's something wrong with us. There's something broken. You can give people the most perfect situation possible on this earth and we'll screw it up. We just we're just it's like we're we're not happy being happy. We can't stand things being perfect. There's something wrong with us. And look at people in their, you, you have people, lovely marriage, wonderful children, good job. They'll blow it to hell. And, and by choice, they'll cheat on their wife. They'll start, they'll start drinking on the job. It's like they've got everything that you and I could want and, and they'll blow it up. You have other people uh, that will just you take advantage of people. They'll steal, cheat, lie. And this isn't just rich people. I mean, we're not good to each other. We do a lot of evil. I, I mean, I'm, look, I'm not down on humanity. As a Christian, I'm, I know that all of us bear God's image. We're image bearers. So there's something about us that is, that is noble. There is something about us that is good. There is something about us that rises above our animal natures. There's something in there that's got holiness and purity to it. But like at our core, something's broken, and so when you look at a school system, you, you have to kind of ask that first principal question. Or why? Why do you have to ask that? Here's why. There's a big move in the United States to standardize all of education. We, we saw uh, we had this battle not too long ago uh, during the Obama administration over Common Core, where the federal government was coming in saying to all these school districts, hey, you're going to have to implement our program. You're going to have to teach our curriculum across all the core subjects to all your students, or you're not going to receive federal funding. See the federal fund, the federal government will also fund these local school districts. So they they take tax money from the property owners, but then they get an allotment. They get kind of a, a, an allowance per student in the school district. This is why school districts hate homeschoolers so much. And we were homeschoolers. And the reason being is every kid that homeschools, you know, that school loses $30,000, dollars $60,000. They lose a chunk of change every year for every kid that's homeschooled. Now, there's not a huge population that homeschools, but, but it is what it is. So when we look at these school systems, historically, they have been very balkanized. You've got all these little municipalities across the fruited plains of America, all doing their own thing and all representing the values of their unique communities. A school system in, in a small town in Texas is going to have a lot different, uh, a, a big, a, a different kind of attitude approach set of values than a school district in uh, New York City. It's just plain and simple. And I think that's a good thing. You see, the reason I brought up this whole issue of human nature, I want to get at this idea of checks and balances. There is a reason that we want checks and balances in our systems and in our societies. This goes to our structures of government. You know, we joke on the show about me as a dictator. The worst thing that could ever happen is that one person gets control over a government, unless that person's Christ. Because do any of us, this is why democracy is so popular. This is why we had the Atlanticist revolutions uh, a couple hundred years ago, People wanted to be out from under the thumb of an individual, the whims, the capricious whims of an individual, because individuals on their own can't be trusted with that much power. So a check and balance is to decentralize that power into the votes of the rabble, the mobility, the mob. Give them some power. It's a check and balance. We're not getting rid of the aristocrats. This is why in the American system, you've got your senators. It's kind of your aristocratic group, two senators from every state. You've got your president, which is kind of like your monarch, your king, your executive power. You have your Congress, which represents the people. You've got the voters. You, you have these checks and balances. You have the Supreme Court. You have these checks and balances that keeps everybody honest. If one side starts to swing too far, the other side can pull it back. And one of the things that we have in our education system is this idea of a check and balance, that each municipality, each each town, each Little community can imbue their school district with their values. And that's healthy. That's diversity. You want that. Well, why do you want that? Before I answer that question, why do you want that? I want to just go to some of these comments here. Um, Piance Zero says, I think the individual can can be essentially good. Not sure nature works on the level of a collective, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you... If you you go, oh, in my individual dealings with somebody, they seem decent. But then once you get this collective group, it can get really, really ugly. It can be really, really wicked and create a lot of human misery, quite frankly. Pauline says, the fact that society so quickly descends into chaos says everything you need to know about our nature. 100%, Pauline. I'm with you on that one. Pines with Zero. I think people can move higher only if they have appeased their natural instincts. As per education, I'd be careful about someone else implementing their standards without your oversight, 100%. Uh, and then he says, a uh, hashtag go rabble. That's our new, that should be, we should make t shirts of that, go rabble. <laughs> George says, I don't know how it works in the US, but in a smaller country like my Austria, and mostly federal education system works pretty good. Now, see, there's a, that, now this is a very interesting point. Uh, and I wanna play this out a little bit, George, before I get back to this idea of, of why you need this um, kind of chopped up check and balance system. A country like Austria is small and in largely homogenous or homogeneous. I'm not sure how people like to say that, meaning that most Austrians share a lot of common values. I understand you'll have immigrants in your country. I understand you have differences of opinion and so on, but your population is quite small. You share common foods, common music, common history, common language, common ancestry, common uh, uh, narratives, historical stories that you tell yourselves that are either true or just part of your culture. There's a lot of shared things. Now, that isn't to say that, oh, Austria must be this idyllic land of, of uh, mountain yodelers and uh, and, and lovely sheepherders and, and ski lodges. I understand that, that it's got its own issues. I, I totally get that. Uh, And I understand that it has its own metropolis and finance. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in Austria. But the country's small enough that if you had a federated system, that federated system is serving one kind of people, essentially. And so I think the country's small enough and and homogeneous enough, homogenous enough that that works. you get a country like America or you get a system across Europe, if you had a federated system across Europe, where the EU was dictating curricula and standards and everything across every country, well, well, why should the Portuguese children have to do the same thing that the Austrian kids do, that the that the uh, Italian children do and the Spanish children do and the French? Ch- you start to get this this sense that we're losing our heritage, we're losing our identity. We're becoming globalized and we're becoming homogenized across on a level multiculturalized. And that's not a word, by the way. Um, and, and to me, that's dangerous. So I, I think the analogous situation would be if you think of every European country as a state within the EU, that if all those states had to come together and do exactly the same thing from the EU, from Brussels down from The Hague, I think you've got a problem at that point. And uh, But to see your country say, hey, will we do this? I don't think that's a problem. And, and because of the size and because of the shared core values. But in America, we don't have that. I mean, we've, we've got 350 million people across hundreds of thousands of square miles, many cultures, many experiences. We don't have shared values anymore. We don't have shared race. We don't have even shared language that much anymore. And that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. But the point being... How do you implement something where you don't even share values? So Pauline says, in Canada, our education system is provincial uh, jurisdiction. It can and has been manipulated to have political content one way or the other at times. Yeah, that that happens. And Pines with Zero says the EU is pushing that, to be honest, meaning uh, this idea that the EU takes over the education system. George says, that's true. We're just 8 million Austrians and 90% don't want Brussels to tell us what to do. Yeah, and when I say, I mean, look, 8 million is nothing to sneeze at. Um, It's a big number. But my point there is, you know, how diverse is, like those 8 million, how similar are they with shared background, shared history, shared culture, food, language, and so on? There's going to be a lot of shared things in that 8 million if you had eight million people all coming from different places, I think you've got a challenge. So let's talk about the check and balance. Let's wrap this concept up here with the check and balance. Why the check and balance in the education system? Why does this matter? Here's the thing in the United States, and this is, and I'm gonna ask people just to, just to think about this for a minute. I've said this before. 95%, 95% of the American population is educated in our public schools. 95%, only 5% of the American students, children, are not educated in public schools. Now, for me, that's not problematic when you have a check and balance system, when you have municipalities and school districts having control over their curriculum, over their values, over their approach. Yes, they're meeting minimum standards. I understand these kids have to pass, being able to do math. They have to pass, being able to do basic science. I get that. We want them to get good jobs. We want them to get into college. We want them to be literate, 100%. But when 95% of the population is educated in a public school, and more and more those schools become centralized under one state-run direction or one global direction, if it's the international baccalaureate that becomes the standard, what ends up happening is these students lose their locality. They lose their sense of community. They lose the sense of who they are, where they come from. And they become homogenized into this great global thing. And and the big issue is, do you really want a centralized state educating your children? Do you think that state will educate the children in such a way that they will question the state? Will that centralized state educate the children in a way that they will be free thinkers? Or will it teach them to behave? Will it teach them to fit in? Will it teach them to not question authority? Will it teach them to to trust the experts? I mean, you know where I'm going with this. For me, we want to raise children that can think for themselves. We want adults that can think for themselves, that can be a bit cynical, that can use logic and reason and even ethics and, and the values that they receive from their families and from their communities To view the world, to look through a lens and to judge, adjudicate situations, make decisions and go into the world and and wrestle with it, engage it and and make their place in it. I think if we want to find if we want to create rather a society where everybody does what they're told, where everybody fits in, where there's a centralized idea of what's right and wrong, a centralized idea of how people should behave and how they shouldn't behave. But there's a centralized authority that will tell you when, and, when you can and can't do things, what you may and may not own, what you may and may not do. If we want that, then we should keep going in this direction. We should embrace things like the International Baccalaureate. We should embrace things like Common Core. We should embrace the EU, Brussels taking over education on behalf of every country, every community, every nation. But because I believe that mankind is fundamentally flawed, I think it's in our best interest to protect the checks and balances, to allow people to make their own decisions. We need checks and balances. Is the federalized government system inherently evil? Not necessarily. Is, is any government wrong? Is, is it just, should we have no government? No, I'm not advocating for that. Should we have no laws? Of course I'm not advocating for that. Should we have no education system? I'm not even advocating for that. What I'm saying is... We should resist the removal of the very things that make our society work. And I believe these checks and balances, like we see in these municipalities, where they develop their own curriculum, as opposed to a globalizing system, as opposed to a federal system, as opposed to this top-down where you are not allowed to teach your children what your community thinks is important. It has to come from the federal government. It has to be government-approved. I think this is a dangerous trend. And what happens is when you impact the thinking of children, well, what kind of adults do they become? They, they can't think beyond what they've been taught. They can't see new opportunities. They can't see other ways to live. They don't know how to choose for themselves. Talk to somebody today on a political issue. Talk to a young person today on a political issue. They're highly uninformed, which is typical. They're kids, but they can't understand. Sometimes they can't wrestle with the questions like, like the question of abortion. Is that child a life or is it not a life? Is there a moral issue here? Well, uh, the only thing they can answer back, they can't wrestle with the challenge of the question. They just go, well, it's the woman's choice. It's the woman. They just pare it back. These turn into adults that do the same thing. So yes, I guess uh, call me a little bit of Alex Jones today. But for me, I would love to see us keep these checks and balances. As you look at your school systems, as you think about public education, I would highly encourage you to, to go a little deeper, think about the impact of, of the continued bureaucratic movement, the f- continued kind of global federal movement of education and, um, and what that could mean for our society. Yes, there's some efficiencies. Yes, we can you know, do some wonderful things and kumbaya and hold hands. That only works if you truly believe that mankind at its core is good. If you look around you, it's very hard to, to believe that. It's very hard to believe that. That mankind at its core is good. So anyway, that's my take on that, guys. Uh, I'm going to stick around and answer some questions, but I'm going to wrap up the audio portion of the podcast. I appreciate you guys. I hope you found this useful. Make sure to get in touch with me. You can get in touch with me a bunch of ways. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mike Gaston. You can email me, mike at mikegaston.com. You can even sign up for my email newsletter. Just go to MikeGaston.com and and, uh, sign up for the newsletter there. And uh, in the meantime, please know that I love you all and I will catch you in the next episode.